0: Proverbs 31, the the virtuous woman, just to give a bit of uh, background here, which I've given before in in these talks about Proverbs, when Solomon came to the throne, he had a lot of opposition, although it may not be actually specifically stated, but he did, he had a lot of opposition, because in the last uh, ten years, at least, of David's life, there had been a huge amount of civil war and and uh, that sort of conflict within Israel between different groups of people who wanted the throne of David as he got older. And Solomon was not without competitors. He had a number of half-brothers who wanted the throne, Absalom particularly. And he knocked them off one by one. And David, of course, wanted Solomon to be king. And David had a number of other wives and women by whom he'd had children who... Uh, also wanted their sons to have power, etc. And so although all we read in Proverbs is from God, it's inspired and it is true as far as it goes, I've suggested, particularly in the study on uh, Proverbs 17, that Solomon is actually using the Proverbs to kind of have a sideways swipe at a lot of the people who were potentially his competitors. A lot of the the, the talk about the fool, who is this, that, and the other, you can see that he's alluding to people like Absalom, Nabal, who, whose name, of course, means fool, and it's the same Hebrew word translated fool in Proverbs. And he's using these Proverbs to shore up his own position. Now, he was given the wisdom of God early in his reign, right at the start, and so he wrote these Proverbs when he was young. And he's using God's truth, I would say, as a form of self-justification, and straight away we get a lesson there, because we can do the same so easily. You know, you can use God's truth as uh, an outlet for your own natural anger or whatever. You can get hold of Jehovah's Witnesses and tie them up in knots or people from other denominations, and kid yourself that you are actually serving God by doing that. And... uh, (laughs) The line is so narrow, isn't it? It's just not even millimetres thick in places between our own self-justification and our own service of God. And it seems to me that with Solomon, although all that he says is true, he unfortunately uses God's truth and God's wisdom in order to justify himself. And that, I think, is why he had a sorry end, that the whole... Uh, real spirituality, was, as he says in Ecclesiastes, very far from him. Now, he starts off here then, talking about uh, the oracle with which Lemuel's mother taught him. Now, Lemuel has a similar uh, meaning to Solomon's other name, Jedidiah. That's the name he's given in 2 Samuel 12:25. So I think King Lemuel is Solomon. And who was his mother? Bathsheba. And so he he concludes the book by really justifying his mother as a wonderful, wise woman, which I'm sure she was. But it's inevitable that we are to understand that within the context of David having had a number of other wives who also wanted their sons to take over the throne. And so he glorifies his mother and he talks about her, and then he launches off in in verse 10 to the end with this uh, poem about the virtuous woman. And I think he is, it's the same woman uh, that he has in mind, that he's saying that she uh, is uh, Bathsheba and she is the very epitome of wisdom. And looking back through. Uh, Proverbs, he has a lot to say about the wise woman, and he embodies wisdom as a woman. And there's a number of connections between the wise woman, which you read about earlier in, uh, in Proverbs, and this virtuous woman that you read about here. It's as if he's saying that his mother was the very epitome of the wise woman. And as I say, I think that he's justifying his mother and his own line of descent from David when it was under uh, so much question. Now, I don't like to to make uh, points that hinge so much upon the meaning of a Hebrew word, but I I find it almost uh, inevitable here, because looking at that word translated virtuous or worthy, the virtuous woman, the worthy woman... um, that's not really what it means. You just simply have to look at all the other times that it's it's used, and it it really means um, it really has a military kind of meaning. This is how it's translated um, as a uh, as a noun: uh, an army, a company, a military company, a band of soldiers, valiant, strong, warlike. And if you want to just write down some of the uh, the verses where this word occurs, translated as I've said, like that valiant, uh, valiant in battle, warlike, etc. Uh, Exodus 14 verse 4 and 9, Exodus 14:28, uh, Numbers 31:14, 2 Samuel 8 verse 9, Isaiah 10:14, Micah 4 verse 13. So. The whole poem that starts in verse 10 down to the end, it's uh, an acrostic. Each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that kind of poem in the literature of the time was used about heroes. It's uh, been called by one uh, commentator a heroic hymn, the kind of hymn that typically would celebrate a soldier's mighty deeds and his victory in battle. And here he applies it to a woman. And I think straight away we get a great lesson there because, of course, women were seen as not much at all and the whole glory was to, to men and particularly to, to soldiers, etc. for their physical strength, uh, for their uh, valiant fighting in, in battles, etc. And here he applies it all to a woman going about her domestic duties. And... It's a wonderful point, that is, because you see what he's doing. He's elevating he's elevating the domestic duties of a woman with uh, running the household, children, etc., to the same level of heroism as would be associated with a, a successful soldier. And this is the whole point, is it not, that all the... The, the, the business of daily life, the daily grind, not just for women, but for, for all of us, domestic responsibilities, etc., this is actually a form of heroism. That to conduct your daily life in the daily mundane thing of running kids to practices, to picking up kids from kindergarten and uh, changing nappies and the rest of it, that all of this can actually be lived out in a spirit of heroism, Because to do those things, to get through the daily grind in a spiritually minded way, this is none less than heroic. And you'll notice that uh, he he talks here about how this woman, uh, verse 17, uh, is strong. She arms her waist with strength and makes her arms strong. And again, verse uh, 25, strength is her clothing. She laughs in confidence at the time to come, at at future issues. Uh, Verse 21, she is fearless of the snow for her household. And again, verse 25, she is fearless about the future. Now, the ideas of strength and fearlessness, these again are uh, terms that are typically used about warriors, about soldiers, etc., And so, as I say, he's elevating the domestic grind, uh, which fell particularly heavily upon women in his time, and he's saying that this is heroic. Now, taking this idea a bit further, following through a bit more with this word translated virtuous or worthy, bearing in mind that it really means power or strength, The only other time that you read about a virtuous woman, a powerful woman, is in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is called twice, and it's Ruth 3.11 and Ruth 4.11, a virtuous woman, the AV says, who would do mightily. And she then is being described as this powerful woman, this woman of strength. And yet, also within the book of Ruth... You read this same word in Ruth two verse one about Boaz that Boaz was a man of power. So these are all the same words, same Hebrew words. Ruth two verse one Boaz was a mighty man of power, of virtue, if you like, and Ruth is the powerful or the virtuous woman, Ruth three eleven, who did mightily, she did virtuously, she did powerfully. Ruth four eleven. The point is that her uh, that she that is Ruth and Boaz were both equals in the sense that they were both powerful, but if ever on the surface it would appear that the powerful man took pity upon the powerless woman, it is of course in the story of Ruth and Boaz, where this mighty man of power comes along, uh, who is a Jew and a, uh, or an Israelite and a landowner to the powerless female who is not only a female but she is without land she's starving hungry and she is not jewish she is a gentile she's a moabites so what appears on the surface as the powerful taking pity upon the powerless that is kind of a genre and an idea that is subverted within the language of the the book of ruth at least in the hebrew It's subverted completely, where the two are put on a similar level, on the same level. They are both uh, people of power. And that really is, I think, the basis for any successful relationship. Because it it has to be. I mean, let's say you are some mega wealthy guy, uh, as as happens sometimes, uh, and the fellow falls in love with this uh, dirt poor girl who he meets in some third world country. Well, however, are they supposed to have a relationship if all the time it is the powerful and the powerless? The only way is for the two of them to find an equal footing. And, of course, in Christ and in spiritual terms, that is what can be found. And, as I say, that the whole idea is purposefully subverted there in the book of Ruth, as I say in the Hebrew text anyway, where the man of power, Boaz, Uh, and Ruth are put on the same level of power, even though it appears that it's the powerful uh, encountering the the powerless. So then, I think that Solomon, under inspiration, has picked up that idea. And this is very elevating, not just for women, uh, but for all people who feel that they are the powerless, who feel that My life is simply a drudgery, a trudgery, uh, same old, same thankless service uh, of uh, raising kids and running the household. But this is all being elevated to such a greater extent, to such a greater level. And, of course, I'm fully aware that uh, the whole issue of gender is these days a a very uh, political issue, and it's a very sensitive issue, because the idea is that... uh, Oh, if you're just uh, just doing just the household stuff, well, that's, uh, that's kind of nothing. Uh, why has a woman got to do that? Well, that depends how you look at the domestic stuff. It just depends through what lens, what prism you, you look at it. Uh, because in a, in a male-based society, unfortunately, it has been so devalued it's uh, I find interesting that the the radical feminist lobby picks on all that sort of thing and says, Well, there you are. you see women uh, have to do all this stuff with kids and they have to do the stuff they've run in the household that's not fair da they're actually buying in to the whole uh, male based value system that has actually turned all the domestic stuff into something of a lower uh, a lower level and here in the scriptures particularly in this chapter, you see the domestic stuff being actually elevated to a far higher and equal level, just as uh, we, we saw between Ruth and Boaz, that it is not a case, that it's just not the case that this stuff is, is nothing, it's contemptible, and why should I as a woman have to do all this? Uh, that, that is only a feeling that you will get if you fail to see the significance of it that this is actually a form of heroism on the same level as being the, the male warrior in battle. Now, I know by saying that, maybe my more uh, progressive, liberal-minded friends won't be too happy with that, but but think about it, because quite clearly, man and woman d- do have different roles. Let's just open your eyes and look at the structure of our bodies. We We have different roles the issue is whether one role, that is the male role, is so much more significant and so much more valuable and important than the domestic female role. And the whole point of this chapter and the scriptures is that it is not. Uh, They are on an equal. And this is the huge significance I find here of this warrior hymn being subverted as a genre and applied to the domestic grind that this woman was in, so then it, it seems to me then that um, this is a, a ladder with which to reach the stars. That this opens up for us a, a, a huge um, a huge possibility here. That. No longer are we just stuck in the domestic grind. But this is a form of heroism. Now, he he talks in verse 10 about how this woman is more precious than jewels. And I wonder if what he's saying is to find a woman that perceives this is more precious than jewels. Although the very same phrase is used in chapter 3, verse 15, about wisdom. So this virtuous woman, this powerful woman here is being portrayed as the embodiment of the woman wisdom. And this uh, final chapter, I think, rounds off the book, because chapter 1, verse 8, begins with an appeal to heed our mother's teaching. And the book concludes with this chapter 31, where Solomon claims that he's done that. So then he goes on to say, um, an excellent wife, who can find? Now, I don't know quite how to take that. It could be Solomon cynically observing that none of his wives were like this woman, that none of them was good as his mother. Um, And he uses the same words for find in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 28, where he talks about this woman, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So it seems to me that um, he is maybe uh, cynically saying that he he hasn't found such a woman um, because he he finds uh, the ideal in his mother, in which case this would fit in with an impression that that we have got throughout the book in our studies in Proverbs here that David was totally obsessed with his father he uses this phrase, my father David uh, a huge number of times in the hundreds of times and I've suggested that a lot of his spirituality was simply a living out of parental expectation and it was the same, I, I think now, with his mother that he's also obsessed with his mother that uh, he's basically saying, as I understand it, uh, from the connection with the passage in Ecclesiastes 7, that I couldn't find uh, any other woman that's like my mother. And so you see how unhappy Solomon really was in the end, because he realized, I guess, subconsciously, that he was living out parental expectation. He saw his mother as the embodiment of wisdom, he saw his father as the embodiment of the uh, Davidic uh, king, messiah, etc. And he never really found himself, and that is why in later life, I guess when both his parents were dead, when the dust had settled, he turns away from God. And he's a a lost kid, really, he's just lost and, and so terribly sad. Now, this is not to to say that there is nothing of value for us here, uh, looking through this chapter. I mean, verse 15, uh, for example, she rises while it's yet night and gives food to her household and portions for her servant girls. Now, she is a wealthy woman. Her husband, verse 23, is in the gate. He's in the rulership. Uh, She's wealthy. And yet she takes care of her servants. She gets her own hands dirty. And you can see that in verse 19. She lays her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. Well, although it may not be apparent to us, that is a, a very clear kind of uh, contradiction uh, in terms that a wealthy woman who's got all this wealth and can import stuff from afar, uh, etc., works with her own hands, because the idea was if you're wealthy, you didn't work with your own hands. But she does. And I think that that's something to remember. Uh, If uh, life goes the way it might do for for us, that that, that we go up rather than down, and you end up in a position where you do have a bit of uh, spare cash, the whole point is that idleness is not the way to to godliness. And again, I see this as a subversion of... The, uh, the generally accepted position that the, the wealthy woman um, didn't do things with her hands. Well, this clearly wealthy woman does do things with her hands, uh, just as the whole hero song, this heroic song or poem, um, is subverted. It's the setup of it, the, the, the structure of it is praising a warrior, and it's applied here to, uh, to a woman, to this strong, virtuous woman. So then, we also are living in a situation in life, whatever culture you're in, whatever life situation you're in, where things are expected of you, and they may not be what you want to to give. And in the end, there is a radical freedom waiting for us if we are going to go God's way, and we're going to realize that actually it is in the small things that God is glorified. God is the God of the small things. And this is what actually Christianity, day-to-day spirituality, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute spirituality, is all about. Doing all things for Him.